Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for joining us. Uh, so uh, this has proven to be quite a popular session. This is literally the third time I'm presenting it this week. Uh, so welcome, everybody. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, my name is Latin. Um, I actually have uh, a pretty kind of long history with Microsoft. Um, still do. I worked uh, in, a, um, in many roles. I work, uh, worked alongside with Microsoft Research. I worked with uh, various ranger groups, and uh, I've been a .NET developer for, for a very long time, I'm a SQL guy and a SharePoint guy and all these things. Um, um, deployed some pretty massive architectures in the past, and then I've done quite a bit of work uh, on that too with AWS since I joined. So this is a simplified Microsoft architectures on AWS session. Um, it's a level 200 session, which means we're going to cover quite a bit in just one hour. Uh, so brace, brace for it, and uh, yeah, bear with me. Um, so we're going to look how we can generally simplify all things Microsoft on AWS. How friendly it is, how much love we have for Microsoft. Uh, they call it co-petition, right? Uh, and um, so first one being, can we simplify AWS? Uh, can we simplify infrastructure from Microsoft side on AWS? What about you know, very basic things, right? Um, things like Active Directory. Corporate applications. What about Office 365, SharePoint, Exchange, Dynamics, right? What about SQL? Um, how do I deploy all of this, right? What do I do with it? Um, any good migration suggestions? Like, what can we do to simplify migration on Microsoft workloads? What about the actual .NET architectures? Or any other enterprise application architectures? How can we simplify those? How can we use latest concepts? How can we use latest patterns, latest services, technologies? And what about managing those, right? How do we actually simplify managing those? Do we need to bring about the entire infrastructure as we had it you know, in our old data center? Maybe not. So let's start with the infrastructure side of things. Um, there's, there's been quite a bit of innovation uh, uh, for Windows and AWS. I mean, I really implore you to take a look at it. Um, 41 instance types, 10 instance families. Uh, we've had many different, uh, uh, not just uh, in our MEs, but services that we've actually built specifically for Windows workloads. Um, I'm going to touch on those later on around management, up, um, upgrade, patching, um, and so on and so forth. What are the two most common patterns when it comes to um, and this is really coming from me working kind of hands-on with our customers as part of the professional services organization for AWS for the longest time. Um, and uh, I've been kind of doing hands-on um, actual deployments. Um, so I've been working with very large customers that wanted to um, deploy uh, literally the entire infrastructure over at AWS. Uh, so it's always, you know, always facing the same questions, hey, we want to have replicated services. We want to have all our application proxies in one place. We want to have our system center, maybe our SQL farms. Depends really how you manage these things, right? Um, so this is the hub and spoke model, the shared services VPC that actually appears to any additional VPCs from, that can be in the same account or from multiple accounts. Um, what, about, uh, what about if I want to 
make sure that, uh, that there's a way in which I can actually manage all the traffic uh, that is coming in from my data center, um, and I can inspect it in one place. But I also want to, to have transitive properties. Um, so for that, I would be using something like a CSR for this transit VPC that you can see over there. Um, basically, uh, CSRs are the, the, the cloud routers, Cisco cloud routers. If you put right now, if you go to Google, if you put uh, transit VPC AWS, it will actually take you uh, to how to build it as well as the actual cloud formation uh, that you can deploy right now and have it up and running um, in your AWS environment. Um, and with that one, um, you know, you, not only can you actually attach um, all the VPCs, but like I said, the, the, the traffic will be, you know, it will be transitive in a sense that um, not only will, will you have access to all the central services that you uh, may need, like Active Directory System Center, uh, maybe like I said, shared SQL farms and so on, but um, they can all see each other as well, right? In the shared services VPC, they a can't see B, but they all can see the central one, right? In the transit one, A can see B, can see C, and so on, right? So, common Active Directory patterns. Right, the easiest thing in the world, drop two DCs and extend uh, your Active Directory into AWS, right? You can do that either via, through VPN or via Direct Connect, the Direct Connect, is a lease line, dark fiber, whatever you want to call it, um, direct line from your provider to our data center, literally. Um, and uh, you drop two, two DCs, you uh, configure DNS forwarding, um, off you go, you're done, right? What about uh, if I don't have VPN and, uh, or direct connect, but I, ju I just want to federate over, you can do that too. Uh, you, uh, you can use either our, um, um, actually, AWS directory services, Active Directory, which is a uh, managed Active Directory offering that we have. We have both flavors. We got the enterprise edition and the standard one. Um, we support many different things at this point, and we, you know, over time, we've been supporting more and more things like uh, schema extensions, things like you know, working with enterprise applications, including working with ADFS. You will put ADFS proxies up in, uh, in, in a public subnet, and uh, you would establish a WS Trust and um, uh, federation um, between your workloads, your data center, or any additional offices, or your partners, or any other um, uh, different SaaS offerings that you might want to federate to. What about uh, trusts? So one thing, if you, you want to use our uh, managed uh, Active Directory service, right? Um, it, you know, you can establish a, either a two-way or more, more likely a one-way trust to it, um, and, uh, and that way you can effectively extend um, into using, um, um, extend into AWS uh, using a managed Active Directory service that you don't necessarily have to manage yourself, right? We, so we manage it. Um, we, uh, we worry about it, uh, <laughs> um, and, uh, and so, so you can actually um, use it, you know, uh, whether it's for central purposes between, uh, for, for, uh, between multiple VPCs, like in a, um, a, previous, a previous example that I showed you how um, the, the transitive and the 
and the shared VPC works, or for, for single kind of account or single VPC deployments. Either way. What about if I want to integrate with Office 365? I don't know. Lots of people today are using Office 365. They've been using it for a while. Um, they're using it for uh, all the business productivity offerings that they have. Um, some of them are extensively using Azure AD, right? They might even have some Azure workloads that they want to have, and they want to, uh, they want to both have a single sign-on to both workloads that might be running in Azure and Office 365 as well as AWS, right? So with that, we can actually um, integrate with that too by means of ADFS and Azure AD Connect server. Um, we can um, it literally just, um, we add two containers to AWS Microsoft AD for use by ADFS. We integrate ADFS. Um, um, we synchronize our users. And voila, you, you can just, uh, um, you can then federate and you can do a single sign-on to um, both Office 365 or any other workloads uh, that you may be authenticating to via Azure AD. This is just to show you, goes to prove exactly how, how friendly and cooperative and how much we embrace uh, working <laughs> with Microsoft, right? <laughs> this is pure love, like that heart that I had in the first slide. Um, other things. Um, more and more of our customers are using RDS. Uh, which is our managed SQL Server offering, right? Um, they, they really like the fact that, they, that you don't have to manage SQL Server, that they can automate everything from uh, backups to, um, you know, uh, multi-AZ deployment and, and have us worry about everything, right? Um, RDS, I mean, I'll be honest with you, I was also a little bit skeptical because RDS was fairly limited in certain things that you can do. Why was it limited? Because uh, it is a full-blown implementation of SQL Server. Don't get me wrong, right? Enterprise or standard or whatever. Um, however, um, because it's a managed service, we don't let you have any way, like systems, uh, uh, system level um, access or um, any file uh, system access or anything like that, um, and you know, any store procedures that may need or um, may, may require any type of access like that. Um, so a lot of enterprise applications need that. You know, things like SharePoint needs that access to go ahead and create uh, databases and uh, do a whole bunch of other things. Uh, so those are not probably compatible, but for the most .NET applications and so on, uh, RDS is a perfect, perfect solution. A lot of our customers like it. Um, they, don't have to, they don't have to involve their DBAs or hire any additional ones. Um, for those, for, the, for, for situations where SQL Server running on EC2 is more appropriate, we actually have um, quick starts that you can go. Um, I was recently actually working with a customer uh, that uh, wanted to uh, migrate um, basically 23 terabyte um, database over to us um, and uh, SQL Server one. And we literally set up the, the whole always-on availability group with entire infrastructure by means of using Quick Start. If you right now, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, put in, in Google or whatever, put AWS Quick Start, 
you will actually, uh, first link that you get, scroll down, find the SQL one, you'll see that we have a CloudFormation that deploys the entire infrastructure uh, environment plus the entire setup uh, for always an availability group between two nodes or three nodes uh, for SQL Server 2016. Um, and I think we support some earlier versions too. So um, we use that, and, and even it, that, that quick start in itself was enough. Um, actually, it was almost a perfect match for uh, the production environment um, requirements that they had. So that's really how good the quick starts are. So I really suggest you check them out. So this is what that quick start goes ahead and deploys. This is what it looks like. Um, it can also stretch out to the, to the third um, um, AZ. Um, one quick kind of note around the actual availability zones. Please remember, it's very different with us than it is with any other provider. Availability zones, I'll repeat again, are clusters of data centers that are geographically displaced from one another on different fault plane on a different flood plane, right? <laughs> it's very unlikely that more than one will ever be down due to any type of disaster or anything that can go on. In fact, the multi-AZ deployment in the eyes of most of our customers actually counts as a full-blown DR setup, right? So uh, some things to, to consider, right? Um, so this is what it looks like. And, um, and this, mind you, is a way that I was doing uh, and this is the idea behind the actual migration uh, uh, that I was working on recently, and then not just this one, but many others before that. In fact, I did a, last year I did a level 400 session around how to do this specifically. Um, so in this particular case, uh, we are actually extending uh, the, uh, the whiskey cluster, the WSFC cluster over to uh, another region and uh, um, adding another, uh, another node in always an availability group. Uh, which is an async remote replica over there. Um, you can pretty much imagine that this left-hand side is your on-premise data center um, that is going over um, either Direct Connect or VPN line, and then you can extend it over to uh, AWS. Um, if you later on, and I'll kind of touch on as well, um, um, just add the application and, and, and web service side, or you're working with an application that does support always on availability groups, you can fairly easily like, cut over to AWS without any of your end users even knowing what happened. <laughs> they won't even know that they are on AWS now. Uh, for those of you that favor failover cluster instances, so failover cluster instances, they differ in what always on availability groups are. They are a little bit old school. Uh, what they only are, are, allow you to have is the is redundancy between two nodes, right? Um, that's great. Um, but however, they use shared storage, so that's not great. Because should storage go away, it doesn't matter how many nodes you have in, <laughs> you know, it, 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 you know your, your entire uh, database is gone. So you need to have some way of replicating that data over. Um, if I go back 10 years ago or something like that, the common setup would be to uh, set up a, um, a failover cluster instances uh, with shared storage, but then set up um, um, log shipping from there to the DR site, and that way replicate the data over or use some, some kind of um, 
uh, you know, kind of disk replication data. Uh, we have things like SIOS Data Keeper. There's uh, actually a lot of uh, third-party vendors and ISVs that offer solutions for specifically for failover cluster instances. Uh, I love this. I love this slide. This is uh, literally, um, uh, you know, a very busy slide, as you can see. Um, but this is a poster that we have in our office as well, and some of our customers do. And uh, this kind of shows, um, you know, an example Microsoft uh, top application, whether that be an enterprise application, whether that be a .NET custom application, or any any different type. Um, and the way it would be running and making use of the services that we have got to offer uh, in AWS. So if you can make um, use of uh, CDNs, uh, our CloudFront can both offer a, a web application firewall as well as AWS Shield service for DDoS attacks, which is one of the most sophisticated offerings for DDoS defense that we have. Um, so if we move from that side of things, uh, you can use um, uh, RDGWs as your kind of jump box to get in and to manage or to access any of the um, any of the servers um, inside the private subnet. Uh, we used to have net instances before uh, for netting out for any of the internal servers to actually uh, pull out uh, um, any of the updates that they may need um, or any access that they may need uh, from the internet. Uh, one-way access. Now we have Net Gateway, which um, um, which we which is a managed service on our side. So we make sure that you always has always has the right availability, resilience plus um, bandwidth that you may require. I mean, bandwidth was actually an issue. We used to use those T2 instances before. It wasn't great when when it pulls out these multi-gigabyte updates. Um, so auto scaling. Um, there's a lot of ways. A lot of .NET applications out there, unfortunately, can be very bloated. Um, a lot of even um, uh, enterprise applications that have web frontends can be very bloated. Um, so we find we found very imaginative ways of uh, uh, basically uh, doing like periodic updates to AMI uh, or rather uh, virtual images on our side that our instances use, uh, so that we can speed up the. Um, uh, the startup of the actual instances when they're being added into the auto-scaling group uh, for scaling and for resilience or self-healing. Um, that um, um, on, on an app side, there's been some good service application architecture um, examples, even from, uh, from the old school kind of WCF services and all that, uh, in which kind of they can scale themselves out um, by just adding them into, um, into auto-scaling groups. Um, and then, you know, we would be using RDS or actual SQL um, managed Active Directory or domain controller running on EC2, and then make use of um, obviously IAM for um, for actual uh, you know security. But um, most we would federate over uh, whether it's to our services via DFS or to to actual workloads on one side. Um, KMS we would use for encryption of data at rest. There's also Cloud HSM. Um, we have a System Manager, which I'm going to be talking about in more detail as we go along. Um, make use of S3 services for storing uh, data like media and pictures and all that um, you know, clunky stuff. And then we can replicate those out to CDNs uh, with kind of CDN configuration. 
and then there's also DevOps, um, DevOps services like Code Deploy, Code Pipeline, Code Build, and Code Commit. I really implore you to check those out in some of the .NET sessions that we have. Um, they work really well. There was actually one session I was in early on that we kind of touched on those services as well very briefly. So how do, we, how do I deploy all these weird and wonderful things? CloudFormation. CloudFormation is at the center and the heart of all great things. Um, this is really, when I started working with AWS, this has been um, an eye-opener. Um, uh, introducing things like CloudFormation and repetitive ways uh, of basically using infrastructure as a service to create everything from scratch or each individual layer, networking, security, application, um, web, has uh, has been uh, tremendous um, in, in a way that projects that in the past would take me at least uh, you know, six months to implement um, and go from dev to kind of uh, to production could actually cut down to and have like a full-blown uh, production infrastructure up and running uh, in two weeks or less. And, um, and that's tremendous. It's really nothing more than a JSON, YAML formatted file, um, that where you put in um, you know, all the resources that you want to create. Um, you can then personalize it through parameters um, for specific environments. And um, our service intuitively knows how to create these instances. It knows you know, to how to establish dependencies. And or you can establish those same dependencies yourself. Um, CloudFormation examples for uh, Windows workload, uh, rather Windows implementations, you can find in the quick starts. I told you that earlier. This is what they look like. You have the Exchange Server, SharePoint SQL, Link. Um, you have actually quite a bit of options. Um, I think there's also the, the DevOps and the Dev setup. Um, I would really implore you to go ahead and, and check those out. Uh, you will also see how uh, CloudFormation can, um, through CFN in it, um, handle multiple stages in deployments of the servers that perhaps require to be restarted several times through configuration, okay? And that's something that I would strongly suggest you guys check out. Um, um, a fairly well done through wait conditions and signals sent through wait conditions. What about migration? Simplify migration. So you'll see our patterns really going from discovery and planning, servant database migrations, to data transfer, application monitoring, and profiling, right? And I included on purpose all of these uh, um, ISV partners of ours and uh, that, that provide uh, great solutions for AWS ecosystem that work um, um, with specifically Microsoft workloads pretty well. Um, Cloudomize, Risk, Cloud Health, TSO Logic. We do have an AWS application discovery service uh, that can be used for discovery of all of your applications and things that you can use. I do, however, suggest this is not something you can like, solely rely on. You really do need to understand your entire application um, um, inventory, infrastructure, um, everything, uh, and, and kind of apply that to, the, uh, to what you get from the discovery, various different discovery services, including our own, that you can use. Um, on the server and database migrations, we have uh, a server migration service, and I'll kind of get um, more, uh, more in depth on that one a little bit, actually, um, at which you, know, you can kind of migrate the entire servers, uh, or you can use the database migration service 
uh, for the database migrations. Now, our database migration service has been actually built for zero uh, downtime migrations, and it has been so, um, so popular with a lot of our customers that some of them started using it as a replication solution, strangely enough. Um, so, you know, they, they are using it for like a DR or whatever the case is. I'm not saying you should be doing it. I'm just saying they end up, they end up using it for that. Um, but um, I would say give it a try. And it's not really only for SQL to SQL, but also SQL to, or like Oracle to SQL, or perhaps MySQL to SQL, or another way around. Um, something to consider as well, if you, want, if you find uh, the actual licensing, let's say for SQL Server to be expensive, um, and you wanna move over to an enterprise uh, ready, uh, a kind of cheaper database, uh, to use with all the same features, the similar features, Aurora would be a great choice. Uh, so you can also migrate to Aurora using uh, DMS. What about data transfer? Uh, there's uh, S3 transfer acceleration. Um, we have an appliance uh, called um, AWS Storage and File Gateway, which is literally an appliance that, you, that can be sitting in your data center um, that goes and uh, connects up to your SAN and then replicates all of the data to, um, to, to S3 or um, Glacier. Uh, on our side, um, you can use Direct Connect. Um, direct Connect is really the connection that I mentioned earlier that connects you to your between your data center directly to ours. And, um, and why, is, why I mention it here is because you don't have to like com fully commit it. You can temporarily use it to migrate all of your data, you know, and then you can switch back to using VPN or something, something cheaper if the cost is um, you know, a concern or an issue. Uh, for whatever reason. And then there's also Kinesis uh, that actually allows you to, you know, to migrate or suck in um, real-time processing of massive amounts of data. Um, we usually use it for log processing, sending it out to either various, um, um, I don't know, databases, um, or um, we can actually hook onto events uh, for it, or we can send it directly to AlgStacks or anything that you may be where you want to kind of analyze this information in more real-time approach. Um, application monitoring, we do have CloudWatch and Config. Um, with CloudWatch, you can actually, uh, there are few things that we have created specifically for Windows servers uh, where you can actually send and create custom metrics um, and, um, and send those out. Um, however, you know, it's kind of just basic monitoring on that side. It is really a central logging service, and that's kind of where all the logging goes in, right? Uh, Config is more that, that keeps profile and check on all your entire infrastructure, what has happened to it over time, how it did, and also is there for enforcing any type of policies that you may have. Um, so, and there's obviously new Relic, AppDynamics, and Dynatrace. So, Example of the migration sequence. First, this is how we used to do it. This is how we would do it uh, you know, on a professional services side of things. Um, you establish a landing zone, which effectively is the VPN connection direct connect with uh, um, your VPC and public subnet design. Heavy involvement from networking guys. You need to know exactly which ranges you need to have. You need to establish. Um, you know, um, where, where do you, you know, it's, it's a little bit more involved around the Connect, but also with VPN, how it's going to be established, or what are you going to use? Um, and next thing is security. 
Um, you create security groups. Now, so, uh, there's, there's two levels of security. One is knuckles, which is kind of a, on, a, on a subnet level. Um, and then you have security groups, which are more commonly used. Um, and those are literally proxy type rules that you put in that can be for one or multiple or fleets of servers. Uh, that you define, you can make them part of like groups of servers uh, that they are in, like domain members and so on. Um, and you define in a fine-grained way exactly what, what's allowed to get in, what's allowed to get out, and how, which protocols. And we have Microsoft-friendly ways of doing it. You can like select a MS SQL protocol or something like that, um, or um, uh, domain. Uh, you know, protocols and all that sort of stuff where we kind of help you out to uh, create those out. And if in doubt, go ahead and check out those um, uh, quick starts, the cloud formations. We do have very good examples of what these security groups should look like. Right? Um, then we go ahead and extend Active Directory. That can be, that can be kind of, uh, you know, some, uh, I would say, you know, um, What's the right word to use? Um, it, it, you know, it, it can't really go uh, like as fast as I would like it to go sometimes because there's always concern uh, with um, customers that have never really used cloud before on uh, security implications of extending Active Directory um, into not just AWS, but really any, any cloud provider, right? Um, and using managed Active Directory usually actually prevails um, and, um, and helps speed things up uh, and establishing a trust instead of just extending uh, the production Active Directory into AWS from a get-go. Um, but in a lot of cases, we do extend the production. And then second thing would be SQL Server, as we mentioned before, either on EC2 or RDS. And then you would then bring up the web server and app server uh, that you might, you know, that you would also create through CloudFormation. Um, you would then do connection draining from on-premise uh, and then cut over uh, into production, do a production cut over to AWS. So this is kind of how, uh, how this uh, migration would take place. So um, AWS uh, um, server migration service, um, honorable mention here, this is currently working for VMware, but uh, support for additional hypervisors is coming. Um, a lot of migrations that I've been doing are actually from VMware, Microsoft workloads in VMware. Uh, it's a very important aspects here. It's agentless. It allows you to capture incremental change made uh, to on-premise of VMs and automatically transfer them continuously to AWS. Very important, right? Uh, and you can... Or you don't have to do it sequentially. You can migrate entire groups of VM, VMs sim simultaneously and orchestrate how that's being done, right? Um, there's also a, a CLI and uh, API access for you to actually create scripts and create your specific way of how you want to use migration service and how you want to kind of uh, adjust and change the orchestration where necessary. Migration Hub makes use of both our services, right, or any of the third parties that I showed you in the previous slide before that, right? It allows you to discover group services applications, then migrate using the tools that I mentioned early on, and then track that application migration status, right? It is really there for you to have a proper view and proper uh, uh, way of planning and tracking uh, your entire migration progress, right? And kind of this is what it looks like. Um, 
This is what a dashboard looks like. It, it's going to show you for each of your fleets uh, what's completed, what's in progress, what hasn't been started yet, how it's doing. You can actually go and analyze uh, all of that to get more information around. And, and you can actually establish what the trends are. Uh, you can establish, you know, if issues are coming up, you can actually easily predict why they, why are they happening, how, and it can help you, I guess, faster to resolve things on a more kind of global way um, than you normally would. And this is a slide that you saw before, more uh, just as to remind you that uh, Always On has been a go-to way for us to migrate both uh, enterprise applications uh, that support Always On as well as .NET applications over, especially for databases that are enormous in size. Right? Oops. Went a little bit too fast. .NET development. How do we simplify that guy? <laughs> uh, okay. So, great things about uh, .NET development. One thing that I'm really, really impressed about and that I've been impressed since I joined AWS uh, several years back um, was the actual integration to Visual Studio. Uh, it is actually very mature now. It's very well supported. Um, it, it allows you, not only does it have templates, but it has direct connection to the services. Um, it allows you to do one-touch deployments directly into AWS. Uh, it allows you to really to make use of every aspect of both the managed services that we got to offer, RDS, um, Dynamo, um, and then also include things like um, S3 and obviously EC2. And, um, you know, automated deploy F, like F5 automated deployments directly using Beanstalk, um, you know, from Visual Studio all the way, you know, to the servers, um, including the actual blue-green deployments and so on. Um, you can just as easily then include um, our serverless application services. You can include SNS uh, the um, uh, uh, simple notification service that all, not only can talk to different uh, service endpoints, but it can also send emails and SMSs. Uh, you can use uh, uh, SQS uh, and SQ, SQSQs um, to actually uh, queue up and use the queuing uh, for any aspect that your applications, uh, application layer may be using or, um, or your application. Literally, you can take off that uh, out of the, the, your current application scenario and then kind of leave it to us to manage for you. Um, and uh, also many other services that you may be using. You may want to use Lambda or serverless, um, um, serverless application service effectively that way you can use, um, um, and you can use C-sharp with it. So it's a familiar language from that point of view or any other language um, of your choice. Um, so there's quite a bit that you can use that you can incorporate and they all can be part of the same, um, same Visual Studio project. And that's, that's quite important. You can also make use of uh, code services. Um, I mentioned earlier as well, uh, code pipeline is really our orchestration um, CDCI service uh, that we internally developed. Our customers liked a lot and said, can you please make it available for all of us? We really want to use it. So we did so, and um, you can effectively, it, it does not only integrate with our services, but it integrates also with third party. There's a laundry list of them. Um, from a source, it can support um, Git, 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 like a managed Git uh, uh, through code commit or GitHub. 
Um, but, um, and the third one being S3. And S3 is very, very important where um, lots of integrations uh, um, from other kind of source um, uh, services um, go via S3. So you can configure things like TFS or VSTS um, using the toolkit and, uh, to actually um, push all of the packages out to S3. And once they get pushed out to S3, that, auto, that kind of automates code pipeline to push it into build. Use AWS code build that can be used for both for build and testing, or you can use any of the third-party services. And then use code deploy that can deploy to both uh, test QA, including production, and then can do uh, more sophisticated deployments, um, including obviously blue-green deployments and so on. Um, there is almost like no learning curve with these services because they're extremely simple to use. Uh, something like Code Build uses, uh, uses a build spec file, which very kind of intuitively shows you, like, you know, where to, you can actually put an instruction where you want to copy the files from your package from which folder to which folder and um, which services you want to start or, you know, you want to, if you want to recycle application pools, if you want to do anything like that. And, uh, and then it has hooks for before install, after install, a few others. Um, and you know, that goes the same way for code deploy as well. It's called the app spec. <laughs> so we're not uh, very imaginative. Build spec, app spec. Um, and our service, by looking at that file, which you, all you need to do is just put it at the root of your package. Um, our service, by looking at that file, knows what it needs to do. And that's all you need, really. So um, we can also use things like uh, Jenkins, Solana CI, Team City, uh, BlazeMeter, Ghost Inspector, Runscope, HP. Um, we can use Opsworks, Elastic Beanstalk that I mentioned earlier. And, we, and each of these um, also can use uh, CloudFormation. So CloudFormation can go ahead and uh, deploy any serverless aspects uh, of the deployment or it can actually uh, deploy any infrastructure if needed. So you can actually manage deployment and changes to your infrastructure through CDCI deployment. So any additional servers, any additional infrastructure aspects that you may be adding or changing. So that's, that's pretty important. CodeStar, to help you get you going. You can go to CodeStar, you can select out of the library of different types of applications. You'll find ASP.NET Core web application or web service. Go ahead and start it, and we will create an actual, uh, uh, we'll seed a, um, basically a test.NET application in, uh, let's say, code commit, and we will create code build. Uh, code deploy and servers to which you're going to deploy to. We're going to create like a whole dashboard for you. You can actually track the entire deployment. Uh, you can, you, you can one click integrate with Jira. There's a lot of things that you can do. Literally, very fast, you can have the full CDCI pipeline created. Um, you can, you can just swap that test hello world.net uh, project that we put in into code commit with your own one and you can see it deploy, get tested. Um, get, uh, get deployed, and you can see um, you know, what it looks like, and you can kind of do incremental changes and all that. Not only does it allow you to kick the tires of actual .NET development um, you know, in AWS, but it also gives you uh, a full-blown, basically, pipeline that you can use and you, know, you can build from um, going forward. 
So now we're developing. Now we have all these weird and wonderful services. Now we have the full CDCI pipeline. Um, now I know that I have all these services that, that you talked about, Zlatan, um, that, that I can use from AWS. How can I now use that to simplify the actual .NET um, architecture? So AWS Lambda, you heard me mention that already. Um, it does support, it. you can use C-sharp to actually write, or you can use Node, you can use Java, Python. Um, and basically, it's a piece of code. In the background, it's basically using containers to do it, but it's a piece of code. Uh, you define how much, um, and the unit is called memory. Memory actually does imply how much memory is being used and is being allocated to uh, your execution of Lambda, but it also has um, corresponding number of CPUs for that specific memory uh, size that you've um, chosen. And it's just a piece of code that you get a payload through that code, you can parse it, uh, that, and then you can do whatever you like with it. You can initiate it any which way you want to. You can put uh, API Gateway on top of it to do it, or you can do it via API itself internally or through CLI. It is really, um, uh, really easy to use. It, it works with many events on our side, right? We use it, the, the, the ops teams use it, SecOps teams use it. Um, there's just many, many uses for it. Um, and you can create your own events as well uh, for execution of Lambda itself. It is incredibly cheap to do so as well. Um, it's for something that you, where you don't have to worry about the availability, scalability, um, you know, and um, you know, self-healing aspects of it or anything like that. It's really a, a, a fraction of what it would cost to actually run it on EC2, never mind running it on any other platform or, God forbid, back on your, um, uh, on, in your data center. There are other services that we use. Um, I mentioned most of them, uh, Dynamo, uh, NoSQL database, Kinesis Cognito, which can be actually used for authentication. We use it mo mostly for mobile application authentication, but it's also used by, for any kind of third-party application authentication. Um, API Gateway, really, it kind of goes hand-in-hand hand with most implementations uh, of Lambda. Um, it is a way in which uh, whether you're, if it's your web front-ends or other services uh, can interact with your Lambda, uh, or, and then you know, Lambda would process a response back. Um, AWS Step Functions um, really are there to replace any old Windows workflow foundations, uh, the, uh, you know, workflows, uh, state machine workflows that you've been using. Um, it is, it is uh, very light, easy to use. It uses our schema-based language uh, where you can define each step. Uh, those steps can execute lambdas and send them payloads and all that, uh, or they can be activity steps that actually uh, accept state and heartbeats from a code that may be running somewhere else in some other container, um, on ECS, um, on Kubernetes, anywhere else, right? Um, or, or an EC2 server, even if necessary. Um, there, there are the, the, the code commit CloudWatch and all that I talked about. SCS, again, um, uh, for if you need it uh, for email sending. Uh, SNS also, uh, like I said, it does send emails, SMSs, and it can talk to other um, service endpoints. Okay, any time now, thank you. Uh, <laughs> so what does that all look like, right? So this is a good example of, um, you know, of kind of a lot of these uh, serverless architecture 
um, our applications that we've uh, built for our customers that are built for our, uh, for our customers too. Um, you can have um, S3 static websites um, and that can actually um, use uh, REST endpoints through API gateway and then they can execute uh, anything they need to execute via Lambda. Lambda can in turn use either RDS uh, and for that you will need to actually deploy Lambda in a VPC and that's an option or outside. It can use uh, uh, DynamoDB. Um, it can use uh, Redis. Uh, more and more of our .NET customers are using Redis actually. Or, um, you know, or you can use Memcache or an Elasticache side of things. Um, SNS, um, it can use queues and SQSQ. Step functions they can have, they, that can have worker processes working somewhere else. And in the same way, you provide effectively what we call a facade, right? that uh, mobile phone applications and Alexas and other things can use just the same, right? And this is very inexpensive, uh, highly available, um, and um, extremely performant way of redesigning and you know, slowly refactoring your application to look like this end product in the end, <laughs> or building new ones that actually look something similar to this. For serverless application deployment, I mentioned earlier, I mentioned the CloudFormation. Um, this is kind of what CloudFormation looks like. Um, you, you need to provide a lot of details uh, in some cases, uh, specifically whether it's for Lambda functions, whether it's for actual servers, whether it's for any particular layer on that. Uh, however, for serverless, we have simplified it quite a bit. Uh, so let me introduce you to Sam the Squirrel. <laughs> uh, it's a serverless application model, uh, so he's very cute. Um, Send the squirrel uh, basically is um, uh, represents the uh, the serverless template model for uh, or Sam template uh, for CloudFormation, um, where that entire CloudFormation that you looked at becomes very simplified CloudFormation that you see here, where you just define your function, which is your um, your actual um, Lambda function, and then you say, I want it to, uh, uh, to for, for event to be an API, meaning that you want to use API gateway, uh, what the path and method is for it, and then define a simple table, which is a DynamoDB table. We have literally tried to automate as much as possible what we think you don't have to worry about, and just leave it for you to quickly kind of create um, these, uh, you know, these specific serverless architectures in, um, in, in CloudFormation. Um, then this is what the pipeline looks like, the pipeline that I talked about earlier with code pipeline, code deployed, uh, code build, and uh, any source that you may be using. In this case, it's code commit and code build. Then it would use uh, um, uh, CloudFormation for uh, create and execute change sets, running stubs, uh, and then uh, through different stages, all the way to production. What about simplifying management? How do we manage all of these uh, great and wonderful things that we have been simplifying so far? System Manager. This is one of my favorite uh, services. In fact, I even worked with a product team um, uh, on, on some features when it came to updating um, uh, Windows AMIs and so on, um, some, some additions to using their automation to do so. Um, so for deploy, configure, and administer, we have run commands. 
Run commands are amazing. So the way the system manager works really, first of all, it's a free service. It's extremely popular with all of our customers that are running Windows workloads. Uh, most of the... Um, most of the things that, um, uh, uh, well, basically, the central thing that it uses is, is documents. Uh, and documents are basically instructions for execution of certain things which, which contain PowerShell scripts or any other type of script. Um, so run command will allow you to execute um, anything uh, to any fleet of servers that you define yourself. You define it uh, by means of tagging. Right, and you can kind of auto send the same command to multiple to entire fleet of servers, get responses back, and very quickly administer it if necessary. State Manager works like a desired state com uh, configuration server, where it actually goes and manages uh, the configuration of each of the servers uh, that once again you've defined by means of tagging, and um, and and if if the change happens, it will change it back, so it will be keep keep on changing the change set or anything, any new, uh, let's say, um, servers that are being created, um, it will perform any necessary actions uh, that it needs to perform automatically without you having to worry about things like adding it to the domain or performing, uh, you know, putting certain policies on or anything like that, right? Um, we have also a page, patch manager, literally was built just for Microsoft workloads. You can select KB articles that you want installed uh, on your servers, you can define to which servers. Uh, you can have maintenance windows for installations of those patches. Um, parameter store, extremely popular for usage um, because this is where you can keep um, your secrets. It integrates directly with our KMS service and uh, which provides encryption for anything that you may be keeping in there. And you can also have a full inventory, right, um, uh, of your entire, uh, you know, uh, server and I want to say infrastructure inventory um, in AWS. Um, mind you, the way System Manager works, it works by means of having an agent on these servers. What that means is that you could have that System Manager managing not just your AWS resources, but anything that you connected to. It could be on your on-premise servers, or it can be servers that are running on some other platform. Because the only thing that it needs to have, it needs to have the rights and access to the, its agent, right? Uh, to, 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 you know, give it instructions of what it needs to do. Um, so documents, once again, documents are there. They can neither be executed by run commands. They, they will be used by state manager to maintain configuration. They will be used for, for patch, by patch manager to perform patches or by automations like the update of AMIs. Uh, continuous update of your like, custom AMIs that you may be using, and so on. You can literally manage your entire environment without actually getting into your environment, right? Via systems manager, right? You can, um, you can, you can also get, get it to kind of spit out information to S3 a bucket to use um, SNS topics or, um, you know, use any CloudWatch metrics and so on with it. But most importantly, you really don't have to kind of, you don't have to have any jump boxes or anything like that. You can just use um, EC2 Systems Manager to kind of manage things by proxy. CloudWatch and, uh, and, and CloudWatch logs. Like I said, CloudWatch really is kind of a central service for all of our logging on our side. Um, you have those normal CPU, you know, UC2 metrics like CPU, disk usage, and so on. But how much of 
like RAM is being used, how much of that RAM is uh, being used by the actual application or how much CPU or um, you know, how many IOPS and all that. Profiling of specific applications, um, specific application logs that you may need and all that sort of stuff. Those can really be sent off um, to CloudWatch logs. You can also send SQL logs um, or you know, domain controller logs and all of that sort of stuff. By means of, uh, we do have lots of examples actually online in our documentation, but um, you can create your own custom metrics to do so. We do have also a lot of partners that do that um, in the same way. And you can then, um, you can then monitor. So that, they all kind of congregate in that way. You can then shoot those out um, by means, uh, like I said, kinesis early on. Um, to, you know, you can get Lambda to subscribe to any events through those logs and perform certain actions, some automated actions that will self-heal any, any of your applications or your infrastructure, um, that um, you can also dump those uh, uh, into like um, a data warehouse like Redshift, or you can dump it onto S3, or um, you can actually um, push it into things like uh, Elasticsearch directly. Um, and uh, get Kibana to actually show you what these things look like. And I do have a final slide that kind of talks about that. Um, you can also perform analytics and all that. And then you can also create, um, you can have um, CloudWatch alarms on any of these things. And these alarms can start uh, workflows. It can send out emails. It can send out um, SMSs. It can, it, it can do a lot of things, right? Um, and, um, and in that way, both inform and act upon any of the things that may be happening with both the infrastructure and your applications. This is kind of really common, and this is what I was talking about earlier. You can richly pipe your CloudWatch logs into Elasticsearch, and then you can use Kibana to fill in expensively create um, monitoring of anything that um, that you're pushing uh, from CloudWatch, and which includes literally everything I mentioned to you. We have also Amazon QuickSight, right? Um, QuickSight, for those uh, Windows, Windows heads over here, is something like uh, PowerPivot, uh, like uh, Power BI. Um, literally, we have a Spice engine that does in-memory data processing, and it's a self-service BI uh, service on our side, where you can very quickly create reports and analytics um, right now on, on the data that is pushed through CloudWatch um, into QuickSight. And um, you can also use things like Trusted Advisor. Um, you, can, um, you can get uh, network information through VPC logs. And then you can kind of act upon any of that information uh, and subscribe to it um, um, by and invoke Lambda on any of these specific events that are coming through. Uh, a lot of cases have been doing a lot of work around pushing those out to Slack, HipChat, or Teams, um, where um, respective uh, DevOps or SecOps or Ops teams can actually both see uh, any changes or anything that they need to know about or whatever the case is, and they can act upon it. So you know, kind of support. You can use um, you can use like a you know a API a gateway, like a webhook, back to. Um, uh, uh, send information back from Slack and all that, and manage your entire you know, infrastructure and applications from um, actual <laughs> Slack or HipChat application. Um, not, or you know, any aspect, you wouldn't do the entire thing, but some aspect of it, let's say. Um, so, this concludes my last, uh, my last slide on simplification. Hopefully, 
uh, by looking at each of these stages of simplification, the infrastructure, um, um, the actual application side of things, uh, .NET development, uh, management, and migration, uh, you can see really how friendly our, our services are with Microsoft workloads, what they can do. Thank you very much. Hope you enjoyed the rest of the day. Hope to see you in some of the parties.